The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 26 of the Asena Board Games. I apologize I'm not my usual cheerful self tonight, but uh, I've been sitting here thinking. If you listen to this show, you probably get a lot of joy in your life out of board games, but I don't have to tell you it ain't always good times. Sometimes you see a game from across the room, and it catches your eye, and it just says, Play me. And you say, yeah, all right, I think I will play you. And you take it home. You put a lot of time and effort into getting that game onto your table. And sometimes, sometimes it just doesn't work out. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's the game. But in the end, you're left with nothing but a broken heart and an empty space on your shelf where that game used to be. And those are the games we're here to talk about today. The ones that you want to love, but you can't. The ones that break your heart. So that's what we're talking about today is heartbreakers. Those games we really expected to love or wanted to love and maybe still want to love, but you just can't. They just don't work in some fundamental way for you. I, for one, have a tendency to buy a lot of games that look kind of vaguely interesting. If I'm disappointed with those, that's not a big deal, but there are some that I've just built myself up on, and I'm kind of doomed to failure. For me, it was not hard at all to come up with my list. I don't know how it works for everybody else. Oh, I've probably got hundreds. I mean, <laughs> but the ones that really bubbled up to memory, yeah. Although, Frank, honestly, just if it is a fixed percentage of number of games <laughs> bought, I think you would still have a lot more than any of the rest of us. Yeah, anyone who sells off 1,200 games in a lot, oh pretty much, yeah. What poor person bought 1,200 games from you? It was actually Noble Knight Games. Oh, wow. <laughs> they said they buy sets, you know, list, work it out. Brian, I gotta say, after your intro, I really want you to GM like a, a noir RPG. <laughs> I think that would be a natural fit for you. I'll put it in the queue. Maybe we'll do a one-shot someday when we can interact in person again. Joe, tell us about your first heartbreak. My first heartbreak uh, was Chaos in the Old World. It was released in 2009. Published by Fantasy Flight Games and designed by Eric M. Lang. No, uh, I fully no, admit. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, no, uh, no. Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> Frank, you can't tell a man how to feel in his heart. I 100% admit that this is a personal problem and the game is excellent. I recognize that. But I've played it six or seven times, and every time I've played it, I've come away with a terrible taste in my mouth. And I 100% recognize that it's a great game. But it's not a great game for you. For me, it just does not work. And I honestly, I kind of don't know what it is because I recognize it's a good game and all the components are really great and the the turn mechanism is really great. Like there's a lot of really great pieces of the game, but for some reason for me personally, it just does not flow. And I find myself when I'm playing it frustrated and annoyed to a level that is unreasonable honestly when playing a game. I kind of don't know why. 
I think it has something to do with the way the turn order works and the way people can interrupt you and how that affects your planning. It's something really deep-seated for me. Both Chaos in the Old World and the logically spiritual successor Cthulhu Wars are all great games. I know lots of friends who love the heck out of them. But for me, for some reason, they just don't work. And it's interesting because, like, that was back in the time when I was like, oh, man, Warhammer board games in general. Awesome. Amazing. I'm going to love this game. And I got it, and I did not love it. I think Joe's broken. That's just... (laughs) I readily admit that I'm broken. I mean, aren't we all broken in some fundamental way? I will say, because of Joe's deep-seated dislike of this game, (laughs) I've never actually played Chaos in the Old World. However, I do love me some Cthulhu Wars, mostly because of the giant Cthulhu miniatures, which are really statuettes. I don't know if Cthulhu Wars is a direct improvement or if it's really just a reskin. Has somebody played both of them? Yeah, Cthulhu Wars is shorter, more focused. Chaos in the Old World is ultimately, you know, an area majority game, but it does two things really, really well. One is you can lock areas and keep people from coming in much more easily. So that constant back and forth that you get in a lot of area control games At some point, you can just shut that down with certain spells and effects. Also, every round, there's combat. So a lot of those spaces get emptied out at the end of the round. All the chaos gods are well represented, and like the way they play is really different. And they definitely feel like they're each the individual gods, right? Which is really nice. It's a little too complicated, which is, I think, its downfall and why I like Cthulhu Wars better, ultimately. One thing that you mentioned, Frank, that kind of blew my mind, frankly... Cthulhu Wars is shorter? <laughs> yeah. That is impressive, because Cthulhu Wars is not a short game. Yeah, maybe I should give Cthulhu Wars a try. Maybe, like, for some reason, just Chaos in the Old World put me in a weird position, but, like, maybe the shortness and it being the Elder Gods instead of the Gods of the Warhammer location will make the game feel differently for me. I, I haven't tried Cthulhu Wars just because I had such a bad taste in my mouth from the Chaos in the Old World. Joe is not ready to love again. <laughs> I'm just saying. And if you've given the game several tries and it's just not working for you, it's hard to approach it afresh because you've got all that baggage from the previous relationship to continue this metaphor well beyond the point of sanity. I don't know what it is because like, it's like I get like physically angry when I'm playing that game and I, I kind of don't know why, like I said, but like I get physically angry. I get like annoyed at my friends and I'm like, this is just unreasonable. Something is wrong in me. I mean, maybe I'm just channeling corn. It's certainly a possibility. Some of it might be the same problem I have when I play actual Warhammer, which is that I kind of like all my little plastic figures. I want them to live great lives and go on to be successful businessmen as opposed to, you know, dying in horrible wars. Like, it, it might be some of that. I don't know. I mean, I have that real bad in, like, war games. I don't feel like I have it in board games, but it's possible that, that maybe that setting evokes a certain amount of that for me. I mean, in all honesty, people living in the Warhammer Old World are probably pretty miserable, so death may be a mercy for them. I mean, probably. Well, come to think of it, both games have that first play. Your first play is always going to be really bad because Nurgle's going to win Chaos in the Old World and Haster's going to win Cthulhu Wars simply because they're the move and spread. And you have to know that they're wimps and shut them down. So, Joe, do you have any recommendations for a game that maybe scratches some of the same itch that you think Chaos should, but doesn't make that reaction? We've said Cthulhu Wars is a possibility. Yeah, Cthulhu is a possibility. I mean, the weird thing is, is like, as Frank has stated, like, the game is actually really good. I mean, like, I would recommend everyone give Chaos the World a try, honestly. But, like, for whatever reason, for me, it just doesn't hit. 
I'm going to have to put a caveat onto Cthulhu Wars because while I while I like that game, I am perfectly cognizant that it makes some missteps that I don't think Chaos in the Old World did. Namely, that is player count. So, Joe, I want you to imagine Chaos in the Old World, but with eight players. That sounds pretty awful, functionally for any game. So yeah, it, it, it is not not recommended. Who thought an eight-player area control game was a good idea? That an area control game that, oh. on average, lasts four hours. Our Cthulhu Wars games generally last a couple hours, but we're playing with four, like sane normal people. Yeah, I think four is the right number for that game. Any less or any more, I think it's just not as good. And Cthulhu Wars also made a bunch of unnecessary expansions. Glow in the Dark Figures is not an unnecessary expansion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So while we're on the topic of chaos, we're going to get into my first game. This was back in the mid-90s when I had just started getting more into board gaming. I had discovered paragraph games. Tales of the Arabian Nights is the big obvious one. I was looking for anything that could sort of capture that same kind of magic for me. And then I heard about a game called City of Chaos which came out in 1996 from Monocle Games, designed by Martin Oliver and Colin Thornton. This was before things like Board Game Geek. And I just remember seeing an advertisement for it, and it was like a paragraph-driven game, and there was a modular-tiled map, and there were different plot lines going on that you could investigate, and there were different sort of schools of magic that you could investigate and learn and level up in, and everything about it was like, I have to have this. So I pre-ordered a copy from the UK, back when that was a complicated thing to do. So anyway, I got it, and... Uh, wow, I, uh, I was so sad. There's a lot of very cool bits in the game. It did have different plot lines going on throughout the city. It did have the different sort of schools of magic you could study and improve on. The problem is, or all the problems can kind of be summed up as, there is way too much and way too random. It's a roll and move, for starters. And when somebody's turn may take a couple minutes if they're doing cards and reading clues and going on to trigger other things. If you just roll and move a space, that's really sad. There are some significant problems with the randomness because as you go on through the game you get better at fighting and you can fight more dangerous things but you may walk in the front gate of the city and suddenly you're fighting a vampire which will almost certainly kill you yeah there's um, no running from combat and it's a single random deck with for events with everything in it and you yeah. draw one every turn yep and the thing that really hurt me about it the most is there's, I don't know, four or five different sources of chaos in the city, i.e. things you have to explore and defeat to get to the end of the game. And, you know, they're actually interestingly developed different plot lines that are going on. The problem is, it's like, all right, well, I found this clue that is starting to lead me towards the necromancer. So I've got some stuff and I figure out, all right, well, I've got this clue for the necromancer, which leads me to this other location, which is all the way across the board, or maybe we haven't found it yet. You go through all the things and you get all right, I think I have everything I need to defeat the Necromancer. And then you happen to explore a building that is the destination of one of the other quest lines. You don't have any of the appropriate stuff, and it kills you. And then you start all over again. Yeah, exactly. Or you have two pieces of the Necromancer quest, and Joe has two pieces of the Necromancer quest, and neither of you are ever going to be able to finish it. The game tends to run way long. The components were on the cheap side, although I did like the miniatures. Uh, there were these 
interesting caricature style, which is a, a love it or hate it thing. There were misprints on some of the fundamental combat cards. It's random and unbalanced, and it takes forever, and uh, I, I just can't. It had some really cool ideas. I still have a partial design for a paragraph game in my head that I'm going to build someday, and it does steal some ideas from City of Chaos, but just too many flaws. Ares Games announced at one point, 2019, that they were going to do a reprint, and other than the press release announcing that they were going to do a reprint, there's been literally nothing else heard on it. Yeah, but. this was obviously one of mine as well, because I bought it. Although the tiles were actually quite nice, and with the miniatures and cards and everything, it was an incredibly heavy little $65 box, and fairly small. And it looks good on the table. I mean, I've been to, um, I think it was in Atlanta Game Fest a while back, when I saw some folks playing it for basically an entire day. So, I mean, there are still definitely people who like it, and, you know, not every game is for everybody, I understand that, but just the disconnect between what I, I hoped this was going to be and what it turned out to be kind of made me sad. If you're interested in something like that with the sort of multi-threaded paragraph game thing, you could maybe look at Legacy of Dragonhold, which we've recommended on the show before. That's a, a great story game. Tainted Grail, and hopefully Ryan Lockett's upcoming Sleeping God seems like it'll have some of that same vibe to it. So my first game is definitely a game, I think. I, I cannot actually confirm whether it's a game or not. And that is Bios Megafauna, which was released in 2012 by Sierra Madre Games and designed by Phil Eklund. And this is a re-implementation of an earlier Phil Eklund game called American Megafauna, which may or may not be a game as well, cannot confirm. My big problem with this game is really a problem that I think a lot of Phil Eklund games have in that they are complex to the maximum. This guy has made some of the most complex games I've seen in board gaming. High Frontier. Which does not make them bad. High Frontier, we managed to get through, we being Joe and I, we managed to get through that first initial play where you are learning the rules and it's good. I will suggest that if you describe the play of a game as managed to get through, <laughs> that doesn't lead me to think that it's good. But go on. No, we it, survived. It, we survived, <laughs> Brian. You get your merit good. badge. But like I said, complexity is a thing. And I think the big takeaway that I got from Bios Megafauna was that there is such a thing as too much. I really want to love all Phil Eklund games because I think I really like what he tries to do with games. They are very grounded in actual science, which awesome. I love it. But over the years, I have learned that there are certain concessions that need to be made in the name of fun. And that that is not this game. I have not managed to get through the rules in that first initial playthrough of Bios Megafauna. In all honesty, it has been sitting on my shelf for years, and I have not revisited it. Now that I'm older and wiser and smarter, I might need to. In fact, in my research for this, I was seeing that they made a second edition, which, uh, God help me, I might <laughs> Go buy it again, Mike. <laughs> Don't fall into the trap, Mike. I've done it. It's not worth it. Actually, I'd, I'd happily help and play. I'm a big fan of American Megafauna, which is the predecessor to this, and it's actually playable. It's still weird, a little hinky, sometimes not a game. A lot of Phil Eklund's games, the winner's decided by something. You're not sure whether you played well or played right or... But you definitely played, maybe? It's hard to say. Yeah, totally. I, I love that the high point of praise we've had so far here is it's playable. 
<laughs> tells you kind of where we're starting. Okay, from so <laughs> so one of the things that really caught my attention with BIOS Megafauna is that it is actually a game in series. And so there is a prequel to BIOS Megafauna that's called BIOS Genesis, where if BIOS Megafauna is the invasion of land creatures and the evolution and spread of life on land, BIOS Genesis is everything before that. And then I think there is even one that he did that is after that. BIOS Origins, yeah. I love that mechanic in almost any game, whether it's video or board or whatever that I play. Because, like, I love me some world building. Another selling point. In BIOS Megafauna, you could end up with dinosaurs wielding weapons. Like, who doesn't love that? So, yeah. Incredible stories come out of the games. And sometimes the way the games fit together and the way things happen is just so fascinating. And it does feel like you're playing a simulation more and you're definitely playing to see what happens in the game rather than caring about scoring or who wins even. It is also very fiddly. Oh yeah. There's like a a temperature mechanic that just like every turn you change the temperature which changes the state of the board it's a Phil Eklund game, so it's not the prettiest thing to look at. I really want to love this game, but I can't, which is, you know, the theme of this episode. Is there anything else that kind of might scratch that same itch that is not quite as heartbreaking? I think Dominant Species is a poor substitute for this game. But like, hey, if you're wanting to play the War of the Animals that is going on within Bios Megafauna, that is definitely the same theme. Or how about Evo? Evo has you running around with different tribes of animals, mutating slightly. I have not played Evo. It's really good. In all honesty, I'm going to say the one that I think this is actually closest to was Space Corps. It kind of has that same evolution or progress of gameplay that is spread out over a couple of different games. Like, I think that one might fill a similar mechanical itch for me. Not so much on theme, but... Evos by Designer Small World. I think it might be the best kind of animal fighting evolution game. I think in retrospect, this all just is my attempt at recapturing the amazing Evo game that came out on the Super Nintendo that I played as a kid. So <laughs> Mine would probably be Deep Madness. This came out in 2018, designed by Roger Chauncey and published by Dimension Games. Get this? It's a Kickstarter. It's got minis. It's Cthulhu. It's underwater with tiles and co-op and multiple scenarios. So it's basically a pretty iconic Kickstarter game. The miniatures are gorgeous. It's underwater, so you can only stay underwater so many turns. You get different character powers, duh. And the game's pretty interesting. I mean, it's pretty typical. The monsters get to move in between each player turn a certain variety of monsters depending on what gets flipped up so not all of them so it keeps fairly tense the worst problem is it commits a fatal flaw it's spawn heavy so basically what happens is monsters get spawned and you just get overwhelmed you can either kill the monsters or move you know one square forward so the game feels like such a slog yeah it's a three to four hour game and you you paid for 200 miniatures we're going to use all of those goddamn miniatures. In every game, yeah. <laughs> Is it one of those games where you're like, what are the rules for if it overflows the board? 
Yeah, there are definitely rules for if you can't place a miniature. Never a good sign. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, I think, one of my major pet peeves. It'll probably come up again. Not killing monsters and just watching them overwhelm the board is not fun. And so rules that you know do heavy spawns every single turn are annoying. Yeah. Get rid of those. I backed this one as well, and honestly, the main reason I backed it is because there was one particular miniature I wanted to use as a proxy miniature in Malifaux. I would agree that the miniatures are gorgeous. I haven't really broken it out and looked at it because, uh, you know, it's one of those games that is, you know, uh, an eight-pound base box plus like three or four boxes of expansion stuff, and it's just, it looks like a bit of a chore to kind of get into. Obviously, it has been reasonably successful for them. They're doing a sequel or expansion Kickstarter now as we record this, which I guess is doing okay. Am I the only one who is kind of over Kickstarter games that come with a million and a half boxes because they're bad at boxing their product? Is that just me? <laughs> as I run out of room in my basement, I definitely agree with you there. <laughs> Part of the fun of getting a Kickstarter now is like, how can I jam all these back into the core box? <laughs> Get very creative these days. One sec, let me check. Sandy? Can I buy another Kickstarter with about 300 minis and 12 boxes? No. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Why is that? <laughs> I feel like that's a conversation that's been had before. Uh, but yeah, I'm certainly being a lot more picky about my Kickstarter stuff. God knows I have so many games I don't even get a chance to play. I'm trying to hold back. And storage is definitely a thing. Although, I'm soon going to have a new game room that has room for more shelves, so... I'll be able to actually fit all the games I own onto shelves, so then I'll just have to not buy anymore. <laughs> For now, it's a trap, right. trust me. <laughs> Jason, tell us what has made you sad. I mean, games I hope you're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we have space after the podcast to talk about other things in your life. They say the like, first heartbreak is kind of the worst, and in my case, that's definitely uh, true. Back in 2013, a game came out called Sedition Wars Battle for Alabaster. It came out from a publisher known as Cool Mini or Not, before they were renamed Simon or Kaman or whatever stupid name they have now. <laughs> and it was designed by Rob Baxter, Julian Glover, and Mike McVeigh of Studio McVeigh, known for their very, very elaborate miniatures. Ooh, um, Jason, that reminds me. I'm going to have those Sedition War miniatures done for you <laughs> any minute now. <laughs> <laughs> He's been working on them all summer. Oh my yeah. god. I had to confirm this, but it's true. This was my first board game Kickstarter. Wow. Boy, was it a bad introduction to that experience. <laughs> I'm amazed you're still Kickstarting. I, things. I, I would say, like, it's kind of a miracle I continued on after this because it's like, oh my gosh. Fortunately, the next one after this was uh, Xeno Shift, which was a huge hit for me. So I was able to redeem Kickstarter, but man, what a, what a bad, bad intro. For anyone who doesn't know, which I imagine is most people, because this game basically has disappeared from people's consciousness, it's basically a skirmish game, two-player skirmish game. One side plays a, a group called the Vanguard, which is basically your hero, space marine, space whatever, uh, hero people. And then you've got your basically space zombies, right? Think uh, Dead Space. I think they're called the Strain. And the idea was you would play either a skirmish or you'd play a scenario, and like there was a whole bunch of like mechanics around how the strain would kill someone, and then they would mutate them and spawn a new monster based off of what that model was that they consumed. And you basically punch each other to death or try and accomplish whatever your goal is for that scenario. It had this really cool aliens-type motif to it. Like The theming, I think, was spot on. I mean, I know you, and that's almost oh, yeah. certainly what drew you to it. Oh, Not yeah. to mention I mean, it had robots in it. Which... Oh yeah, I mean, 
just like every Zombicide game ever, it pulls heavily from pop culture. You had figures from Aliens, Firefly, Dead Space. I mean, the amount of add-on figures you could get was obscene. And this is before the days of the all-in package. So it was like, buy the core set, and then you can buy all these individual figures for 10 to $15 a piece. So it was a nightmare <laughs> to try and figure out what you were actually getting. What really made this game kind of problematic when I finally got it, because of course being a Kickstarter, it was late. It came in a bunch of baggies. I was like, what is this? You had to assemble all the figures, which in and of itself isn't that big of a problem, except mm. there are no no instructions. <laughs> I'd say they were a pretty big problem. So you asked me to put these together for you, because this was back when I was really into putting together some miniatures. And this game kind of broke me, because... <laughs> Not only were there no instructions on how to do it, but also most of the pieces were just not formed in a way that they could go together. Nope. There was no indents. There was no guidance on where things might possibly go. It was literally like, it was the worst parts of Kingdom Death Monster when you're trying to glue stuff together and you're like, I have no clue where this is supposed to go. I was right there with you, Mike. I actually finally managed to assemble the rest of the things as just an exercise of like, okay, I'm about to do this Kingdom Death thing. I need to practice on something I don't care about. Oh, Sedition Wars. (laughs) It was good and such that it gave me lots of practice and frustration. But, you know, I finally did manage to play the game, and that's where a lot of the other problems cropped up. The rules were bad, like they were just not very clear. They acknowledged this problem and came out with a second edition of rules that were also not great. They tweaked the cards again. But just like from a playability perspective, they didn't do things like, hey, I'm fielding three units of space rangers, whatever the hell they're called. They all have individual health that you have to keep track of. There was no way to indicate which model went with which card. No colors, no bases, nothing. Just, nah, just remember. No, that's like, that's basic skirmish game. Like, this is the same model. I need to know how much health this specific model has. Nothing for that. There's tons of tokens and dice in the game. Nothing for that. Just like basic, basic things like that. And then just other production problems where like the models weren't as crisp as they were supposed to be. The tiles themselves were printed too darkly, right? It's like they went to the printer and no one spot checked them. They're like, ugh, it's really hard to see the details on this. Is this supposed to be the control room or is this supposed to be the hangar? Hmm. It's just a whole bunch of black squares. Oh, well. <laughs> I didn't make it very far in the game. I had like three separate campaigns I was hoping to play through. Never managed to do that. I was poking around the uh, Board Game Geek forums, and apparently the Esoteric Order of Gamers has actually come up with a universally praised rule set with upgraded cards that actually lay out the information in a way that a human being can read them. And people seem to like it fairly well. The last people playing it was like about four years ago, so I don't know how well it's aged. But uh, I don't know. Going through it, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some value out of this stupid game. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and play it again. I just need to play it with not Courtney, because boy, did he not enjoy this game. <laughs> he, yeah, he does not like his units being murdered and then turning into my units. That really pissed him off. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any recommendations? If you like what Sedition Wars wanted to be, or you thought it was going to be... Yeah, I mean, honestly, just in terms of good two-player skirmish games, like, I really like the the old Claustrophobia and the new Claustrophobia 1648. I really like the Edge Dawnfall. Again, that's not a good one to get into if you don't want to spend a lot of money, but I I find that a much more balanced experience, uh, a lot more fun. The rules were certainly easier to understand. Space Hulk. Oh, yeah. Just go old school. (laughs) You want to play Space Marines versus monsters that want to, you know, rip your guts out. That's basically as classic as you can get. So, my second Heartbreaker was released in 2011 by Asmati Games, uh, designed by Carl Chudik and Chris Sieslick, and that was Innovation's Echoes of the Past, which is the first expansion to Innovation. And the reason this was a really big Heartbreaker for me is, like, the base-level Innovation game is 
great. I love it. I'm always happy to play it, always happy to introduce new people to it. I think it does a ton of things in a really clever way. It holds together really well. All the components are really clever and fun. And there's multiple ways to win. There's multiple ways to have fun. There's a lot of awesome going on in the game. And so I was really excited for the first expansion. And man, does the first expansion fall really, really flat. Like, it adds a couple new keywords. Those keywords are confusing. The game is a little complicated in its base. Not, like, super complicated, but, like, the way cards are manipulated is are very specific in the base game, right? Like, whether you're tucking or putting on top and splaying and what that does to the symbols that you have available is very specific. And it added this ability to, like, echo, which means you'll play a card in the future. And, like, the... Just like the cards that were added didn't feel as iconic, the new rules that were added didn't feel additive to the base game. The innovations they added were less innovation-y, right? So, like, the base innovations are, are stuff that's all really important to, like, civilization. And in the Echoes of the Past, it was just less that, right? It felt kind of like a second run, someone clearly scouring through history for names they could put on cards that weren't already in the base game. I feel like I may be partly to blame for this one, because we actually printed out a print-and-play beta test version of these cards. I first remember it being really annoying because we sort of had to sleeve, you know, <laughs> a, a, a hundred or so little sheets of paper. But yeah, like Joe, I think the core innovation game is brilliant. I think it's Carl Shuddick's best game. I know there's a lot of people that love Glory to Rome, but innovation is my jam. And this just adds more that I don't think adds to it. It's interesting, I'm actually looking at the Geek and seeing how the ratings go. The Geek rating for the original game is just over a 7, and then every successive expansion gets lower and lower. And I think it's just because you had a solid core and you're just overcomplicating it. One of the real wonderful things about the basic innovation game is just it is complex in its simplicity and i know that seems like a sentence that doesn't make any sense but it is what 10 cards per stack in 10 stacks that you play through the game is hyper simplistic but in that simplicity it does a lot of really interesting and complex things as yeah. cards interact with each other the game is just intricate i'm not going to say that base innovation is at the limit of complexity that i want to play i certainly play and enjoy more complicated games but i think when you add enough more layers of complexity like you know having cards that you're forecasting to play in the future and that sort of thing it becomes complex enough that it is too complex for a game of that weight I think it's more work than you want to put into what is functionally a half-hour to 45-minute card game. I prefer to play it on Board Game Arena. It takes care of all the rules. And it's amazing how many things you miss. It's like, oh, wait, why did it do that? Oh, yeah, it was supposed to do that. Yeah, um, there, there are complications, to be sure. Yeah. I didn't realize Board Game Arena had that. That's really nice. Oh, yeah, and it's a flawless implementation that every card does all its rules. Out of curiosity, does it have the expansions? I don't know. It might have Echoes, but no more. So I guess in terms of replacements for that, I feel like the obvious replacement is just play innovation. Right. Yep, I agree. Just don't yeah. add the expansions. The next one I wanted to talk about was a game that Frank introduced me to. And I'm not going to blame Frank for this because he knew when he told me about it that it was a fundamentally flawed game. But I was so excited by the description of it that I went ahead and got a copy anyway. 
This is Castle of Magic. It was released in 1991, although it was the early 2000s before I found out about it, by Riddlemaster Games, which is now Cloud Kingdom Games, designed by Rick Smith. And this is a deduction game on a mixture of steroids and crystal meth. Um, basically, the base concept is you're traveling around a castle, and there is a ritual that will happen at the end of the game involving a bell, a book, and a candle. And there's sort of two states for either of those. The candle can be lit or unlit. The book can be open or closed. And each of those eight possible combinations of those three things in their on or off states will result in a different ritual result. And the ritual may banish the monster that lives in the castle, or it may send it to eat a particular player, or it may put them under control of a particular player. And you are trying to figure out which combination of things will do the thing that you want to do. Everybody has a character that they get at the beginning of the game that scores points based on different things. And if the bell is ringing and the book is open and the candle is lit, does X, there is no causal relationship between if the bell is ringing and the candle is lit and the book is open, changing one thing may do a completely different result. So you basically have to figure out what all of the possibilities are until you find the thing you're looking for. You are a member of one of three different guilds. You're from one of three different nations. So there are other people who may be in your guild and may be in your nation, but you don't know that, so you have to find out information on them. And even if they are in your same guild or nation, they may or may not be trying to achieve the same goals as you. So there's a ton of information you have to try and decipher. It's a roll and move, which, of course, is everybody's favorite. So, you know, any given turn, you may or may not get a piece of information. And if you do, it may or may not be something you care about. If you're trying to do your spells to get some information or take an action, in the beginning of the game, I think you have like a one in six chance of making it work, and you can gradually bring those numbers up. But there's still times when you'll try and do a thing in your turn and it just fails and you get nothing. There's just way too many variables going on as far as trying to get some idea of what you want to do, what the results are going to be, who may or may not be on your side. Every character gets a different combination of points. I get points if I rule this nation at the end of the game, and I get some other points if I have this object of power, and I get some other points if I kill the monster. Uh, there's just so many bits of random mess. It's it's also ugly. <laughs> really very ugly. There's literally no artwork on the board. It is basically just a track of squares that branches off in a couple different directions, and some of the squares are colored. And it's just, it's, uh, oh, it's, it's such a mess. You know what I thought of when I saw the quote-unquote artwork in this game? <laughs> it reminds me of like a high school's book report project where you have to create a board game based on the book. It looks like that. Oh my gosh, you're right. That nails it. Yeah. Ugh, wow. I don't mind the art. I mean, games in the 80s looked like that from small press. I don't mind the roll and move and random, but man, that game is long. I mean, yeah. you're looking at four hours for a game that just doesn't really deliver that much action. It's a lot of number shuffling and tracking things for yeah. way too long. I think it could be made into a better game if the spells weren't random and the movement wasn't random, because I like the idea of everybody having their different goals. And I think this game also does something that I, as a gamer, really hate, in that it's you've got three variables that you need to control, but anybody can mess with those variables mm -hmm. it's the same thing that i didn't like about nemesis it's just like man i could spend several turns trying to do a thing and then as soon as i do it and start on the next thing 
somebody can come along and undo everything that I've worked with. I was actually going to mention Nemesis as an alternative that does some of the same stuff. And I think while Nemesis has problems of its own that we've talked about before in the show, I think it's certainly a better implementation of this same idea where you've got multiple people trying to do similar interrelated things that may or may not be on the same team. Actually, I'd go for Shadowhunters. Only two or three teams, but I think it's got a lot, some of the same feel and really, you know, that learning bits about people. And it's certainly a lot shorter. Oh, yeah. And it has action pretty much every turn. The one thing I would say is I don't know if I can in good conscience recommend Shadowhunters until someone reprints it with a readable font. <laughs> Other than that, it is certainly a good game that has the same style. So my next game is actually going to be a category of games, and that is anything made by Queen Games. My relationship with Queen Games actually started with a Kickstarter they did back in 2013 called Lost Legends. This was published by Queen Games, designed by Lewis and Stefan Malls, and it's, uh, it's a bad game. And it is also one of the first times I fell into the trap of It Looks Pretty. Because the artwork in this game is right up my alley. It's like a high fantasy, but with future tech, cool art. Look, it was 2013. I was young and foolish, okay? Mm -hmm. We've all been there, man. But really, this, I think, is the perfect example of Queen Games as a publisher. They do a great job with production. Their games look beautiful. They have good instruction manuals. Their games look beautiful and feel good, and when you purchase them, you are definitely getting your money's worth of stuff. But that's about where Queen Games' involvement is. They have no interest in design. They have no interest in making sure that their games are fun or good. When they partner with a designer who... I think is experienced and is seasoned and is a good designer, their games are good. There are lots of queen games that I look at and be like, that is a good game. Not great. Good. So basically your problem is that they are not selective enough in terms of what they publish. Yeah. Not doing enough development work. Which is a real shame because they are a good publisher, but I have struck out on so many queen games that I just don't know that I have an interest in buying any more of them. So like Lost Legends from a mechanical standpoint is you're each playing an adventurer who's going into a dungeon to kill things and get some fat loot, right? Sounds great. Every round you are going to draft equipment and I think you're also drafting monsters. It's been a minute since I've played this one. But the equipment is itself a problem because, A, there are not enough cards in the game for everybody to actually get a piece of equipment in every slot that they have available. That seems like a problem because if you know that bit of information, you can change your play around that and just lock out other players from doing things. And then, of course, it's got the, the problem that some of the cards are just straight up better than others. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're competing to kill enemies before each other. The only thing that matters is who lands the killing blow, at which point the money falls out of the enemy and you are forced to share it with your two physically neighboring players. Whether or not they were involved. Right, whether or not they were involved, which is really weird. And I think... For Lost Legends specifically, you are better off to look at something like Cutthroat Caverns. 
which pretty much does the same thing, but better. Wow, that's horrifying, because I really don't like Cutthroat Caverns. I like Cutthroat Caverns. It's not a great game. I know. I recognize that you guys all like it. I, for whatever reason, just don't. I mean, Cutthroat Caverns has its own issues. It's a little bit more of a direct screw your neighbor, which, like... Yeah, I think that's what I don't like. I think that's the big difference, is that, like, Lost Legends does not present itself as a screw your neighbor, and there's not a ton that you can do to directly influence what other people do, other than hate draft and have the fortune of being the person who just happens to get the killing blow on the enemy, which there's not a lot you can really do to control that. So it's mostly comes down to luck, which doesn't feel great. Whereas cutthroat caverns is very explicit of, no, you're going to screw your neighbor at every opportunity. So it's at least forthcoming about what it's trying to do. Other queen games that I've played, because I'm sure that there are some out there that are great. I mean, show manager, Alhambra show manager, Right. Those are perfectly good. good games. Yep. But like, Edo is one of the games that I got from them that I cannot get anyone ever to play with me. There's a brief period of time in 2012 where that game just existed in my trunk so that we could play it at <laughs> any given time, and it just never happened. I think that's the thing about Queen Games is that it's like, hey, let's play Edo, and meh. Yeah, something about Queen Games, they're sort of the generic idea of a board game. Most of them yeah. are fine. Yeah, and Queen does traditionally doesn't do any development on games. They're just, you know, we'll take it, publish it. So the games that are actually by a designer who really finishes games, Show Manager and Alhambra, were advanced versions of games by Durkin, who's one of those favorite designers that no one knows about. Skylands, which I love is a new version of King of Frontier, which I'm sure I've made everyone play. It's the Carco Rico, the one that's Carcassonne meets Puerto Rico. And they have some pretty big name designers. So like another good example of this is Kingdom Builder. And that game is fine. It's a game. It was like Spiel des Jahres though. So, I mean, it Mm -hmm. was really well praised. It is actually a good game. I like it. I just... There are other games I would almost always rather play yeah. or be playing. And it's funny because a friend of ours who really likes Macau just found out that Queen Games is doing a reprint or a remake of Macau. I, I think that friend might be me. That was a weird way to phrase that. I wasn't going to say anything, but like, I was like, that was... There is certainly friend of the show, Sean, who I think would also be interested in it. Brian, I think that uh, friend of the show, Sean's love of Macau far outweighs yours. To the I point don't know. I like Macau an awful lot. When I think of somebody who wants to play Macau, I think of friend of the show, Sean. Because <laughs> he's like the pl- platonic ideal of someone who wants to play Macau. <laughs> You're not right. Wrong. But like, and I certainly like Macau. I will be happy to play it. I think it will be well produced. I'm just like, eh, I don't know. Well, they're going to be making some changes to it. So we'll see. Uh, see how it comes out. It's almost like a curse with me and Queen Games. <laughs> I don't strictly hold it against them. I just I, I just can't. I can't. They've broken my heart one too many times. We're here for you. <laughs> Not like physically, because... God, yeah, good well, Lord, I mean, wait, I y'all mean, are here for me? Yeah. Joe is physically there for you. Y'all are here for me? Y'all want to play Edo? Nope. <laughs> 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 yeah, as far as sequential things that we just need to get out of our system... Yeah, as far as sequential things that we just need to get out of our system, my uh, obsession with Kickstarter. And in fact, this is going to be my last Kickstarter game. What? 
Don't worry, there will be many more in this episode. Oh, no, no. The last on the Heartbreaker list. I was no, going to no, say, no. You've, you've given up Kickstarter for Lent? <laughs> Frank, are you no, dying? What's going no. on? <laughs> oh, no, there are more Kickstarters on the way. Many, many more Kickstarters. <laughs> but this was the last true Heartbreaker. It's Journey, Wrath of Demons. No designers listed, but Marrow Production, Chinese company. And this is a miniatures game based on the monkey or journey west or west journey classic chinese novel about the the monkey monkey king King. journey into the west journey into the west oddly enough this kickstarter still hasn't completely fulfilled we haven't gotten all the expansions yet and it's been years i mean literally this is a date from 2015 when they actually fulfilled the first part of it five years later they're still working on the oh, a couple man. of expansions the estimated uh, delivery was july of 2014 oh yeah <laughs> on the kickstarter <laughs> and i'm not even sure they made 2015 i think this was 2016 when they actually delivered the first Oof. part the main box the miniatures are jaw-dropping and huge and absolutely great the four main characters monkey tripitaka pigsy and sandy are just wonderful they are a little spawn heavy. I mean, it's a miniatures combat skirmish game co-op. The worst problem is this game is featuring kind of a very wuxia kind of Chinese fantasy martial arts kind of moves. And the characters move like a much slower version of Space Marines. Uh, wow. And you have to, you have to deal with <laughs> facing, facing and turning. It's so weird to be playing like monkey and okay, I move two spaces. Because he's the super agile one. <laughs> and, you know, he's got a flying cloud a stick that can go up to 100 yards, I think, is the, the rod. And it just feels like such a slowly paced game. You do so little on your turn. It's not terrible, but the disconnect between the theme and miniatures was really a surprise for this kind of game. It was slow and plotting. And, and yet I'm a huge fan of the Monkey King. Yeah, if you're making a wuxia game, I feel like slow and plotting are not adjectives that should be applied. Like, they're just trying to make it feel like the original run of Dragon Ball Z. Uh... <laughs> thing happens every three episodes. So, like, between turns, like, you gotta, like, scream for at least 30 minutes before anything can happen. So, Frank, yet... does each, each turn start with a rehash of what happened in the previous turn? <laughs> And yet, it's a game that's starting to get discounted. It might be worth picking up if you love the miniatures. They are pretty nice. I'm looking at them right now, and like, those are some nice miniatures. Oh, yeah. Said literally everyone about almost every Kickstarter ever. Yeah, really. And uh, so sad. And they included Hopping Ghosts in one of the expansions, so it's like, uh, it's not fair. BGG has this game's the game time set to 30 to 75 minutes, which seems like not that long. It's longer and it feels, it actually isn't that much longer, but it feels so much longer. Years, the slowness. Anytime you have to worry about facing, it's going to slow a game down to crawl in my, oh, my I experience. Know. Frank, if you're interested, there's a company called Demented Games that does some really nice miniatures, and they have their sort of Victorian iteration of the Monkey King characters, which are just gorgeous. Cool. As far as a replacement game, there was a Japanese anime fighting game, Oko, Era of the Azagiri, of standees in the original version, but they did a recent Kickstarter with a new version for minis, and it's a really quick, fast-moving game. And for those games who are at home, that's Oko with two Ks, not Oko with one K, which is a different game. 
Let's move from Eastern fantasy back to Western fantasy, specifically D&D. I think Joe and I ran into this at a PAX uh, originally when we played the demo that they taught us incorrectly, but I'm talking about uh, 2017's Dragonfire, released by Catalyst Game Labs, designed by Randall N. Bills and 10 other people that I'm not going to list because that seems (laughs) insane. What drew me to it is I, I really liked the Pathfinder, the adventure card game. And this looked like it was going to be something along similar lines, but with specific focus on D&D rather than Pathfinder, which I'm less familiar with. The idea is you pick a character, race and class, helps you determine what kind of cards you start with in the game. And during the course of the game, you use money that you earn from killing monsters to buy cards from a common marketplace, and then you apply those cards to monsters to defeat them. Over the course of the campaign, and I use that word very loosely in this game, you can earn XP very, 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 very slowly to earn stickers that give you permanent upgrades, but they're like, swap out a red card for a blue card at beginning of the game. Things like that. Very, very minor changes. And there's some loot in the game that become part of your deck. Ultimately, the game kind of failed me in two different ways. One, it was painfully hard without being fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's I love, a bad combination. Yeah, I love games that are hard. I mean, we love Kingdom Death Monster, and it punches you in the face constantly. This game just feels like it's more of a luck of the draw. Hey, we don't have the cards necessary to defeat the monsters that we're facing. There's literally nothing we can do about it. Everybody take half their life and damage. Oh, everyone's down. We lose. We start over again. So that was the first problem. The second problem is it was kind of touted as, you know, hey, you have this progressive character that, you know, changes over time and you keep improving. And my previous experience had been with Pathfinder where that's actually true. This game, it's like, uh, well, your initial card composition is slightly, ever so slightly different. The marketplace never changes, which is real boring after like the fourth game and ultimately the amount of gaming you would have to do in terms of hours of play to get any sort of benefits that you could add as your stickers onto your character card was so frustrating that every defender i found of this game on on board game geeks like well of course we house rule the the gold and the xp but this game's amazing (laughs) like okay well did you just read what you wrote there because no that 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 indicates a problem the game you've made from these components is amazing (laughs) yeah exactly it's based off the original um, Shadowrun Crossfire game, which I know Mike was a big fan of. Oh, uh, so it's oh, funny wow. that you mentioned that because uh, <laughs> these games broke my heart so badly, they completely <laughs> fell off my radar for this list. I <laughs> blocked them out. You just mentioned that, and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, those games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jason, I mean, I agree with Mike. Plus one. <laughs> I can't believe I forgot that Crossfire and Dragonfire are even a games that exist. They they hurt me so bad. Are you in a ball crying and shaking on the floor, Mike? Mm-hmm. <laughs> My biggest issue with both of these games, and I'm going to go ahead and dispel the myth that Dragonfire fixes literally anything about Crossfire <laughs> because it doesn't, is they are so close to being a good game, but they're not. And like... I think, like you said, there is no character progression. Crossfire has even worse because there's literally no point. Like, you go out, you do a mission, you get some XP that might someday be spent on a upgrade that is so marginal that you might as well not have it. It's just like they wanted too much control over the power level of the players that it's not fun. Like, the upgrades don't feel good. 
and they had the unfortunate problem of having come out at almost the exact same time as the Pathfinder Avenger card game, which just took that concept and did it better in almost every regard. No, I, I completely agree with you. My replacement for this game is play Pathfinder instead. Like, there's no reason not to play Pathfinder if you're looking for this sort of experience. You actually feel like your character changes over time. And like, there's, I would argue, more of a campaign in Pathfinder. Like, the campaign in Dragonfire was like, uh, we have to protect this asshole. Uh, we're still protecting him. Uh, continue protecting this asshole. And we stop playing the game. <laughs> and I think what made that worse is that that was a campaign plot that existed entirely outside of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The things that you did while playing had absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with that plot. Like, he never showed up in the game. He was not a card. Nope. The, the people who were trying to get him were not a card. Like, just everything about it was bad as a campaign game. I feel that this game has hurt you both very badly. I'm sorry we had to bring it up, but I think talking about it is important for the healing process. The funny but... thing is, like, they tried to build, like, a whole in-store, like, experience where they, they'd have nights where you come and participate and you would be able to earn this, you know, unique magic item that you could only get by participating in this. And, and when I bought it at the convention, they accidentally sold that to people. And so I have that, and it just doesn't matter. Like, the, the magic <laughs> items don't matter. Nothing matters. And, like, in the Shadowrun game, they just stopped supporting it entirely. This Dragonfire game is still going strong. They have tons and tons and tons of stuff for it, and I have no desire to play any of it <laughs> whatsoever. All this nothing matters stuff? You have baggage, dude. Yeah, this game has driven you to existential <laughs> angst. <laughs> I mean, Jason, the reason it's still getting supported is because of Watsy, so... Yeah, true. Good point. I think I agree. I wanted this game to be more like the Pathfinder Adventure card game because... Paizo has kind of moved on from that model after releasing three sets of it, four sets. I highly recommend if you want a game that is a save state progressive character campaign thing, go check those out. This game just is garbage. I have long given up on trying to make this game better. It's weird, though. There's people that really love it. Like They staunchly defend it at the same time while saying you need to make changes to it to make it a good game. I agree. If you make changes to this game, it could be a very good game. I don't care anymore. <laughs> the thing that makes me sad is that I'm a huge Shadowrun fan, and I really wanted Crossfire to be good. And for many of the same reasons described, it just wasn't. I agree with you, Brian. Like, I think that they were onto something with the Shadowrun Crossfire game, and then they just gave up. And that's really disappointing. And that is basically the history of all Shadowrun crossover products, unfortunately. Folks, we have so much pent-up rage and anger and angst about these games that we had to split this episode up into two parts. That's it for part one. Tune in again next month when you get to hear us talk about more games that make us sad or angry or regretful. And if you have any guesses on what's on our list or if you want to share some of the heartbreakers of your own, please drop them on our Facebook page or any of the other social media sites which you can see in the show notes of this show. In the meantime, thanks for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
I'm gonna vomit everywhere. Please stop. 